For those of you that didn't get an outline, it is on the Grace Bible Church Facebook page. I left a link there so you can access the, the outline for today. Let's open in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come to you this morning, Lord, and we're grateful. We're grateful that we're your children and that we're part of your church and that we're beloved by you. We pray, Lord, today that you would open our hearts and open our minds, Lord, to understand wonderful things out of your word. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so today is the seventh lesson um, on the subject of marriage, and this will be our last lesson. But I want to come back to a subject that I said that I would look at in our first lesson, um, and that is the topic of marriage being a type of the relationship between Christ and the church, a type of the relationship between Christ and the church. Physical realities are often used as metaphors for spiritual and eternal truths in Scripture. Sodom is sometimes used analogically to serve as a symbol of shameless wickedness. And in Revelation 11.8, Jerusalem is likened spiritually to Sodom and Egypt as a way to convey their apostasy. The land of Canaan becomes a type for spiritual rest, even as a symbol of heaven in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. The city of Jerusalem in Revelation serves as the earthly type of the heavenly Jerusalem, which is the great city of God. Abraham sought after the city of God, which he knew was not of this world, and he himself becomes a symbol of faith for the people of God. Listen as I read Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 16. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself conceived strength to conceive seed, and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful, who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. This passage teaches us that the heavenly realities are better and more desirable than their earthly counterparts and are to be sought after so much or so much that the things of this world begin to fade away, as it were. As Christians, we are indeed strangers and pilgrims in this world. In this lesson, let's focus our eyes on the greater reality that earthly marriage represents, as Christ is the great bridegroom and his Christ, 
or in his church is the bride. We've already seen that this relationship is the pattern from which to build our own marriages. And now let us lift our eyes heavenward to this glorious truth of which we are all now partakers if we're in Christ. So let's think about the heavenly reality of the groom and the bride. As we delve into this topic, let's read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and 33. You may want to turn there today because we'll be referencing it often. Now this time as we read, as I read through it, focus on what is said concerning Christ and the church rather than our own marriages. Scripture says, starting in verse 22, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Now, in this passage, we see at least 11 statements concerning this spiritual relationship between Christ and the church. Now, these are that Christ is head of the church. Christ is the savior. In this context, it means the preserver of the body. The church is subject unto Christ. Christ loves the church. Christ gave himself for the church. Christ sanctifies and cleanses the church with the washing of water by the word. He will present the church to himself, a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle. He will make the church to be holy and without blemish. The Lord nourishes and cherishes the church. We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And number 11, this is a great mystery. Several of these statements are describing that we as the church, or are describing where we as the church stand in relationship. That is our position as his body and subject to him and Christ's position over us as our head and his work as our preserver. Several of these statements are describing things that our head, Christ, is doing for us. The last statement is that this relationship is a great mystery. Now, mystery in Scripture denotes truths that are hidden for a time or are hidden to the natural mind, yet not that the mystery is unknowable by the people of God. God through the Spirit has revealed many glorious mysteries to us in Scripture. Listen as Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 16. This is a very interesting passage, so pay attention to this. He says, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, 
Yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world, that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained that the world before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by the Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which men's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That's a wonderful passage. The great mystery that Paul is revealing is that the marriage relationship is an analogy to the relationship of Christ to his church. It isn't unprecedented that God used this analogy to represent his relationship to his people. Psalm chapter 45, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea all use this metaphor. But Paul reveals more as he shows that the church's relationship with God is through Christ and that we are, in fact, members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. These words that Paul uses are from Adam when God brought Eve to him. We find this in Genesis 2.23. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It's not a coincidence that Adam is referred to here. 1 Corinthians 15 compares the first Adam to Christ, who is the last Adam. And Romans 5 says that Adam was a figure of Christ. As God put Adam to sleep, opened his side, and took a rib to make Eve, so God created the church out of Christ's side when he died on the cross and was pierced with a spear releasing the blood and water of our atonement and cleansing. As Adam was awakened from his sleep and presented with Eve, so Christ was raised from the dead and God began bringing him his bride. That gathering together of the bride of Christ is still occurring to this day as God is still calling his elect from every nation to be joined to Christ in the church. We are in fact of his flesh, and of his bones, as we were drawn out of his body, as we were created in Christ Jesus, Scripture says, as Eve was taken from Adam, and we are brought to him as his mystical body being built up in him. How much closer relationship can there be than that of the church being created out of his death and resurrection 
and being gathered and built up in him as his body to be one with him. As Christ is in the bosom of the Father, so are we joined to each other and to Christ. Jesus prayed to the Father concerning this in John 17, verses 21 through 24. He prays for those who would believe, asking that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. And so we have been joined to Christ. We are in him, and he is in us. He is joined to the Father, and we are joined to Christ. This is how we are reconciled to God. The eternal Son of God took to himself a human nature and became a man. As a man, he became our federal head, our representative, as the second Adam, representing us in his perfect righteousness and his atoning death. By his reconciling work, we are united to him by faith, and because of our union with Christ, we are in fellowship with the Father. We are brought into the inner sanctum of fellowship with God because God was willing to condescend to us and take upon himself the nature of a man so that we could be partakers in his glory. Brothers and sisters, this is what marriage represents. This is the picture that scripture gives to us. The reality is so much greater than the type. It can hardly be compared I can remember as a teenager not wanting Christ to return until after I got married. What foolish and childish thinking. The joys of this life will be forgotten because of the far more and exceeding glory and joy and fulfillment in the consummation of the kingdom of God. Earthly marriage is but a dim shadow of the heavenly and eternal reality. Now, having touched on the mystery of the church being the body of Christ, of his flesh and of his bones, let's turn our attention uh, to Christ sanctifying the church. Our passage in Ephesians 5 has three statements that we read, that, that we read a moment ago concerning Christ sanctifying his church. And these are that Christ sanctifies and cleanses the church with the washing of water by the word. And he will present the church to himself as a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle. And he will make the church to be holy and without blemish. The means he uses for this sanctification is, as verse 26 says, the washing of water by the word. The spirit of Christ uses the word as he cleanses as the cleansing agent in our sanctification. This is why the word of God must have a central place in the life of the church. It is as the church submits herself under her head, who is Christ, and to his word to her, that her sanctification 
is accomplished. The visual picture represented in verse 27 is that the church in her presentation to Christ in glory will not have any spot or wrinkle, but be unblemished. It says in verse 27, that he might present it, that is the church, to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. This could be an allusion to a dirty garment being washed and ironed so that it is presented perfectly clean and unwrinkled by virtue of the process of cleansing with water. The point is that Christ will so cleanse his bride that she will be holy and radiant without any blemishes at all. Saints, we can take comfort in the reality that Christ is sanctifying us. Scripture says in Philippians 1.6, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. It says again in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Sometimes we can forget in the difficulties of life that Christ is truly overseeing the process of our sanctification. It is true that sanctification is a synergistic work, meaning that we work in tandem with God to accomplish the goal. But let's never forget that the Lord is sovereign even over our willing and our doing. It says in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That does sound pretty fearsome. For it is God, he says, which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Thank the Lord for that. Sometimes we fall into sin and we think that if God were in control of our sanctification, that he wouldn't allow this to happen. It may seem that we are regressing in our spiritual walk at times. This often happens when we we become self-sufficient and proud. At times, God remedies this by allowing us to fall so that in time we learn to trust him rather than our own abilities. This happens painfully as we are humbled, but in the end, it draws us closer to him and makes us more careful in our ways. Listen to how scripture sets forth for us Christ's work on our behalf in securing our salvation and delivering and protecting us. Hebrews 2 starting in verse 10, says this, For it became him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren, In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Forasmuch then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death 
he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. You see how Christ is the captain of our salvation, and we are here called his brethren as he took upon himself the seed of Abraham. He identified with us so that we could be identified with him. He reconciled us to God, and he supports and aids us when we are tempted. We can have confidence that Christ will preserve us, not because of our ability to keep ourselves, but because of his love for us. This is the essence of the analogy of marriage being applied to our relationship with Christ. It is that Christ loves us and was not ashamed to be identified with us. He initiated the relationship, and he will see it through to the end. In these 11 statements concerning Christ in the church in our passage in Ephesians 5, we can see three themes, if you will. One is the arrangement of the relationship. We have Christ as the head and the church being subject unto him. The second is that Christ will purify and protect and perfect his body. And thirdly, we see that the environment of this relationship is love. This love he has manifests itself in what he does for the church. Verse 23 talks about him being the savior of the body. I mentioned this earlier that in this context, savior isn't referring to the atonement, but has the idea of the preserver of the body. This goes along with the statement that the Lord nourishes and cherishes the church. Christ is caring for you. Christ is preserving you. Dear Christian, there can be no higher position for a creature than to be loved by God. Love gives, and God through Christ has given us everything. For now, we have everything we need for life, and godliness, Scripture says, and for the future, we will inherit all things. Our greatest inheritance is God himself. God told Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. What was Abraham's reward? God. God is our inheritance, and in him all things belong to us. David said, The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, 
I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. We see a reference to Christ here. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Isn't that a pleasant psalm? And finally, John testifies in Revelation 21 of our future with God forever. Let's take comfort in these words and glory in the marriage of God to his beloved church. He says, starting in verse 21, verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. We see this picture of bride and groom again. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be, his, and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of life, of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. These are glorious truths, glorious promises. And this is what it is. This is what the analogy between marriage and Christ and the church is, that we will be taken care of, that he will sanctify us, that he will prepare us for life forever with him. What a glorious reality. And, and it's something that as we view our marriages and as we, as we copy our marriages after this pattern that we've been given, that we would lift our eyes beyond this world beyond the physical reality of marriage and we would see the eternal and the true it's more real than our own marriages it is eternal and lasting whereas our temporary marriages are passing away the things of this world are growing dim the things of eternity never will so i just want to encourage us as we have gone through this these lessons on marriage, this the seventh one and last, that we lift our eyes to heaven and we glory in Christ and that we let his marriage be a pattern for our own and that we would love our own wives like he loves his church. Amen.